Hello, I'm Arielle Kroon. And I'm Christina Della Rocha. Welcome to Season 2 of Solar Punk Presence, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if solar punk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, solar punk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about. Welcome, listeners, to the 10th and final episode of Season 2 of Solar Punk Presence. Like our first episode, today it's just Ariel and Christina revisiting and nuancing our discussion from Season 2, Episode 1, on urban versus rural solar punk. In that episode, we realized that we're both coming at the idea of wilderness from very different points of view. And similarly, when we say the word rewilding, we have very different ideas in mind. So. Let's get into it. Nuance. That sounds kind of scary, but well, I'll do my best. You are the nuance that we (laughs) remember. (laughs) All right. So, but let's, let's start just by talking about definitions. So what do we each mean when we talk about wilderness? We learned from the episode with uh, Dr. Kerber about these British and North American ideas of wilderness and where that sort of came from and how that arose from romantic poetry in the 18th century and 19th century. So that's kind of how Ariel, how I have been using it. I don't know why I'm talking about myself in third person. <laughs> the royal but, we. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is how I have been using it. <laughs> um, but Christina, since you come from a completely different context and background, could you explain sort of how you've been using wilderness to me? Okay. I don't know if I come from a completely different context is that I just come from no context whatsoever. <laughs> um, before I answer, I should say that I, I'm a biogeochemist. I'm not an ecologist. I also am generally pretty out of step with the rest of the human race. Yeah, so but if you still someone want... who uses the English word wilderness. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> when I when I use the word wilderness, I sort of think of a relatively large area that has a a fully functioning ecosystem or a reasonably fully functioning ecosystem. And so, you know, that's large enough. You've got herds of animals wandering in and out and you've got all sorts of different types of flora and fauna and it's going through cycles of disturbance and, and recovery with relatively little human destructive interference. Mm. Um, and you know, it's it's also one of these things like, you know, a wilderness when you see it, right? Because it, it, it's just qualitatively different from other pieces of land. So for me, the, the human aspect, like the wilderness being a place where there's no humans, I don't really, that to me, humans are so uncentral to the definition of wilderness that I don't even think about that part of it, which is so I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead um, and interrupting your definition of wilderness, which maybe I should let you get to. I think you bring up a really good point. I think the historical roots of that idea of wilderness as it exists in the North American and British sort of ideas we see in Cronon's article, and as Dr. Kerber talked about, are really rooted in language and poetry and stuff like that, which does have this necessary separation between humans and wilderness. Regardless of of what's actually going on, that's the way in which our language kind of invokes that 
historical baggage, I guess. Yeah, you know, I um I went and looked up the definition of wilderness in in an online dictionary, and it they they really do say you know it's this this area that is devoid of of humans of people. Um, so I was a bit shocked by that because. You know, I mean, when you think about wilderness areas, so if you think about the national parks, if you want to call those wilderness areas, those are far from devoid of people. Mm. They, you know, they're also full of inhabitants because there are people who who live there and work there, right? The people who work for the park service or whatever. So, yeah. so this this is also it's a very yeah, it's very strange to me. Yeah, I mean, of- as as you were saying in the European context in Germany where you live, there are people who just live in what we would call national parks. And that's just kind of the way things are over there, I imagine. So well, so I I, I also looked this up today. When you look at the um the actual land area of Germany that you could actually kind of consider wilderness, it's like less than 0.6%. Oh, wow. Right? So there ain't no wilderness in Germany. Sorry. There's quote unquote forests, but (laughs) they're not wilderness. Well, because they are so heavily logged and there's no, you know, all the sort of natural cycles have been disrupted because they let the trees only get so big, they plant them in straight rows and not to mention that many of them are monocultures of species of tree that don't really belong there. Um, they log them and then they take them out. They don't leave anything to rot for the insects, right? So there's, it's just not, it's not a natural ecosystem anymore. It's, it's, it's doesn't have wolves anymore. Although I guess it's changing a little bit, but, um, and you know, you have to have the hunters come in and shoot the deer. Otherwise you get too many deer and then the deer eat everything. And yeah, it's not wilderness. Mm. But maybe maybe you should um maybe you should give then this historical or traditional or your i your definition of wilderness as I see it, it goes really back to the origins of sort of settler colonial exploration and uh settlement of North America, and these ideas these ideas that really come from biblical usage of the term wilderness as a place that is not okay this is difficult to explain because at first biblical usage of the term wilderness was like you get cast out into the wilderness it's not a nice place to be you want to be inside the garden however there was a change in the 18th century with the romanticists who were like actually the wilderness is this place where you can go and be self-actualized as a rugged cis male individual and it challenges you both spiritually and physically in the way that you are able to rise to meet the challenges within the ecosystem. So whether that's, I don't know, hunting deer or wrestling a bear, that's sort of <laughs> <laughs> but so what what seems to be common to those two ideas of wilderness is that it's not a place where people belong. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's not a place where people are living. It's where people go to experience revelations. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It becomes really tied into this idea that wilderness is this place where you can go to experience being closer to God or the universe or the sublime, whatever you want to call it. You can have this spiritual experience in the wilderness. And in the 18th and 19th century, this definition of wilderness, which really influenced a lot of especially American uh, environmental organizations, was that this is a place where you want to go, but you don't want it to go 
you, you want the wilderness to be preserved so that you always have that option to go into the wilderness and experience spirituality. And then you can come back to your day-to-day life. On some level, it's <laughs> not a bad thing, right? And I, and it's not even a new distinction. So if, if you're talking that already by the time the Bible was written, it was well set in people's mind that there were settlements where people lived. And then there was the wilderness where you were just kind of on your own and anything could happen. That's relatively ancient, you know? It's So it's it's not like this definition we have of wilderness then on as being a place where people don't go regularly and don't live and aren't a part of that's surprisingly old when you think that there actually weren't that many people around 2000 years ago yeah or or longer um and there was still you know quite a lot of space out there and yet people had already opted to to come together and to live not in wilderness for the most part but in in settled areas yeah, I think and really um, identified with that. I guess that's what I was trying to say. Really <laughs> identified with that. Yes. Yeah. It's that strange flip in sort of the 18th and 19th centuries that happens where wilderness, which had before sort of begun to take on this idea of being morally bad. The wilderness Well, or not again, that's not new, right? If Jesus no. is going out and wrestling with his demons in the wilderness, it's already kind of a morally bad place. Exactly. So um, why should we care about the wilderness if it's evil? We should destroy it and it should not exist. And turn it into something and turn right. it into something useful. So so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not necessarily all bad that suddenly people are like, hang on, we don't actually have to wrestle the wilderness into submission. We can actually appreciate it and and try to preserve it before we destroy all of it. As I said, I live someplace now that doesn't have wilderness and it's really crappy. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I agree that that impulse is is really a great thing, but I think that what happened was that people kind of swung too far to the other side. <laughs> if you catch my meaning. Yeah, they, no, I, I I understand that. I understand that. It is sad that we think of ourselves as being apart from the earth. Yes. Yeah. And especially of seeing people who are living in, quote unquote, wild areas and saying, because you are a human being, you cannot live in this space. This is a space for me to go when I want and to not have to look at other human beings. Um, oh, well, anyone who's gone to a national park does not have that experience. <laughs> no, no. This was, you know, but, like, you know, on the other hand, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, but it's also good that I think it's good that we have national parks so that in principle, everyone can go visit them. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I think this is a really complicated issue. Yes, there is a shameful historical legacy of the national, of setting up national parks as being uh, used as part of the excuse to remove Native Americans from the land and and to, you know, to contribute to that genocide. That is horrible and shameful. And I was shocked to learn that because I didn't know that. On the other hand, now, today, I'm really happy we have national parks because everyone can go visit them and yeah. see and and appreciate them. And, and they, okay, <laughs> I don't actually think it's so bad to view the wilderness as someplace that's sublime where you can go and see beauty and experience the earth. I think that's great. I actually don't think that's bad. I understand that it's bad if you think of yourself as being separate from nature, so then you go home and go back to polluting and doing all the overconsumption and all that horrible stuff that wrecks the whole earth. 
that is a bad aspect of that dichotomy. But I also think it's nice to have places where people can go and say, wow, the earth is a cool place, is a really cool place. I agree that having that available to people is great. I just think that the way that that was put together was not so great. And yeah, so what do we do about that? that? I think that we need to critically think about the ways in which we use language and the ways in which it informs the way that we act on things. So if we say wilderness and we think wilderness, ah, yes, there's wilderness over here and there's people over here, then you're going to act in such a way as so that you either value the wilderness over people or you value the people over wilderness. It becomes this sort of binary. If you think of wilderness as a place that is available to people to go to and for people to be in, and that's fine, and there's no valuing of people uh, differently than more than human nature, There, there's not that hierarchical valuation do you do you understand what I, mean? I, I understand i'm i'm a part of me isn't really convinced that that actually happens <laughs> hmm. um i think for the most part people tend to win out and when they my feel my feeling my feeling it's just my feeling here is that when wilderness is being used as an excuse to take land away from people or to kick people out of places where they've lived it's being used as an excuse and the people doing it aren't being honest about it, right? Mm-hmm. It's being used as a shield. And I'm not sure that, yeah, I mean, it's complicated. I understand that it's complicated. I have to admit that I have great sympathy for the school that says everything um, has its right to exist and independent of human beings. And I, I, I've been reading that there are problematic aspects of that, and I'm disappointed to find that out because I would hate for that to be used as a weapon against people. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think human beings are more special than other forms of life, but I don't think that that necessarily needs to be used as a tool to take things away from people or to discriminate against people or to treat people badly. Yeah, these are very thorny issues. They're yeah. what's referred to in the social sciences as, as wicked problems. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Things we can't really Well, but you know, answer, so if you right? you know, so if you want to talk about okay, it's bad these certain national parks were taken, you know, the Native Americans who lived in like Yosemite or in Glacial National Park or wherever were kicked out of these areas and not allowed to go back in because it's wilderness now and people don't live there. And so part of you is like, well, okay, that was unjust. And then how would you fix something like that? But at the same time, do you ever look at New York City or look at Los Angeles and say, okay, there were Native Americans here who were who were <laughs> kicked out. And how do we fix that? You know, no one's talking about giving bits of Los Angeles back to Native Americans or, you know, even though that property, the property values or New York City, that's worth a lot of money. Yeah. You know? And so on the other hand, we're maybe we're not... Yeah, it's wilderness is different because people don't live there and nobody owns it. And so we also have a different attitude towards it. Yeah. I mean, when you say nobody looks at at big cities like that, I I do. (laughs) Do you? Okay. But I mean, nobody's. I I think that might be part of the, like, coming from Canadian academia, we 
tend to have a land acknowledgement before every single meeting. And so it's been drilled into my head about who the original owners of the land are. So I think about that quite a bit whenever I am in a place. And usually these, you know, like academic meetings, they'll happen at, you know, the University of Edmonton or, or sorry, the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And they'll happen, you know, at the University of Toronto. And like Toronto has a treaty relationship that goes back hundreds of years. And there are several different groups who are the stewards of the land. So we acknowledge that, but at the same time, we, okay, I don't want to get into the, you know, like how land acknowledgements can be problematic, but I'm just saying that that is part of now the way that I think about things. Uh, 10 years ago, I did not think that way. But does it accomplish anything? Well, I mean, what it's accomplished for me is that now I have this decolonial sort of attitude towards big cities where I'm thinking, oh, you know, like this originally, this city of Toronto has not always been a city the way it is today. And it has not always, the land has not always been used for um, the same purposes as it is today. And the way that people live here is not the same as it is today. And, and yet so you it, can look at any city and say that. Yeah, it allows me access to sort of deep time, which is not something that I thought about beforehand. And maybe that's on me. Um, but like it, especially growing up, you don't tend to think about the history of the place that you live um, when you're, you know, seven years old. Um, oh, okay. I guess growing up where I grew up, where I always heard, oh, yeah, and. In 1950, this was all just still bean fields or whatever. Oh. I always did think about that. You know, when you're living in a relatively young house, that's the first house that was ever built on that piece of land. Wow. You do think about that and you do wonder, what would this have been like? Like, you know, before all this, even before the bean fields and, you yeah. know, and, and, and yeah, to some degree, there are photographs of of some of the places before they were developed and and I can you know I also growing up there were places that weren't developed and now they are and it's hard to remember sometimes what they used to look like that's so cool but well, it would, yeah. it would, I don't know I think it would be cooler you know before there were you know 20 million people living in the Los Angeles basin or <laughs> well not quite 20 million but I want to take this chance actually to segue away from definitions and down to, I wanted to talk about eco-fascism. And I think that the way that we're talking about wilderness, about sort of the binary between, you know, like more than human nature, good people, bad kind of thing mm -hmm. tends mm -hmm. to sort of infiltrate into a lot of environmental thought. And I've seen in a lot of solar punk thought, I mean, it's, I don't think it's intentional. I hope it's not intentional. But these are, I don't want to say memes, but they're thought patterns that people can fall into very, very easily. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit. My disclaimer is that I'm not the be-all, end-all expert on this topic. Far from it. I'm actually hoping to have a future episode with someone who studies contemporary ecofascism to explain its nuances a little bit better. Get off my land. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, that was not nuance. Sorry. <laughs> um, part of why I wanted to talk about it is because my like my quote unquote side of the debate that we had sort of in that first episode was romanticizing the country and the life in nature and self-sufficiency of a community in the wilderness. It can all sort of lean a little bit 
too far towards eco-fascism, right? Oh, well, I think that's being a bit harsh, maybe. I don't know. I'm not up on my cottage core, but I, my understanding is that a lot of the imagery is very white and that can be a bit exclusionary. Mm. Yeah, but, I, you know, is that eco-fascism? I, not necessarily, but it could be co-opted into sort of eco-fascist thought and symbology. So let, let me explain a little bit. So it used to, okay, so back in the 1970s, it just used to be kind of a catch-all term for environmentalists, the way that, you know, some people still use the term feminazi and they think they're super intelligent by conflating the two. It's kind of like, oh, this ideology is going to take over and like it's bad for everybody. So, um, you know, anybody who was like, hey, maybe we should protect nature was called an eco-fascist. Um, yeah, I have to say anyone who says feminazi has never actually sat down and thought about what the Nazis did. <laughs> There's orders of magnitude there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I have that feeling as well. However, I don't engage those sorts of people on on that. I just, yeah, I just give those people a blank yeah. stare. Like, I can't believe that just came out of your mouth. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, when I talk about ecofascism, I'm talking about sort of recent ecofascism from sort of the 2010s because it had a resurgence in the... Um, I guess we're in the 21st century now, and I don't know why this is still around. Um, but I looked into it a little bit. Um, it's basically, it's xenophobic, it's anti-immigrant, um, it's focusing on blaming the demise of the environment on overpopulation or over-industrialization of other countries. Usually it's countries like the global south or quote-unquote China that are, you know, like rapidly industrializing and also not having as many environmental regulations or thinking as deeply about the environment as these or not having as much money yeah or not having enough stuff yes they they you know like are not able to industrialize in the right way so i'm pulling from naomi klein here but she basically defines ecofascism as environmentalism through genocide so it's basically a moral imperative to get rid of overpopulation through whatever means necessary. Very. Uh, I feel like these people are being disingenuous, right? It's 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 like with kicking the Native Americans out of what you want to call a national park, right? It's just using it as an excuse to be a jerk. Well, it's it's a recognition that yes, humans are are bad for the environment, but also you are not human enough to deserve to live. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that's incredibly problematic. I'm not going to name drop the guys and one lady who are the intellectual forerunners of ecofascism because they don't need more press than they already have, except to say that there are explicit deep ties to Nazism and the blood and soil movement of the National Socialist Party in Germany in the 1930s and early 40s. Okay, well, if you want to talk about fascist aspects of cottage core, I think you've got it right there. Blood and soil, or Blut und Boden was this Nazi idea that German land and German blood were tied together, that ethnic German peasants were strong, beautiful, and pure, and that their way of life was the right one, whereas cities were decadent and full of Jews and the weak and corrupted middle class and aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. but as I said, like these things are being used as an excuse to be horrible. You know, the environment... Preserving the environment is being used as an excuse to discriminate against other people and be horrible to other people and keep people out of your land, you know, yes, and that's exactly. disgusting. It's really disgusting. And that's, it's a shame because environmentalism is important. And it's a shame that these 
people would tarnish it with this. Yeah. It's a fundamental lack of intersectional sort of thinking about both the rights of humans and the rights of more than human nature and the way that those two interact and the rights of different types of human beings, in fact. So a lot of... I mean, I I think these people don't care, though. It's not that they're failing to think this way. It's that they don't care. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like to think that everybody can be reasoned with, you obviously have a nicer family than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also very conflict avoidant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, recently, though, it got really popular from like a few different factors. But really interestingly to me is that in 2008, it really got a boost from this book that came out from two Canadians called The 100 Mile Diet. And it launched what's called the locavore movement into public consciousness. And like, I picked up The 100 Mile Diet in like 2009 and read it. Um, It was, I don't know, it was at a bookstore sale, I picked up for like a buck or something like that. And I read it and was like, oh, wow, this is new and exciting and interesting. And uh, this locavore movement, I've never really heard about that. That's that's something that is a really different way of thinking about the way in which we get our food. So. Hmm. I don't know. My first my first reaction to this is, but I like oranges. <laughs> I don't want to just eat turnips and kale all the time, right? And right. potatoes. <laughs> but and also the gosh, you know, trade is one of the defining aspects of humanity Mm -hmm. and of civilization it's what Mm -hmm. we've been doing for longer than we've had cities probably i don't know (laughs) everybody has engaged in trade native americans engaged in trade i mean it's how we it's how we exist together as as a global community and as and how we have we learn about each other's cultures and it's how we get to eat oranges (laughs) if you live someplace where it's too cold to have oranges Oh, I totally agree with you, Christina. Yeah. I, so, I mean, my I would never want to have to eat only food that came within 100 miles of where I live. Yeah. Well, I mean, but at the time, um, it became a pretty huge deal. And like, I think it got a boost actually from, you know, the business community because all kinds of businesses saw it sort of as an opportunity to advertise themselves to the people in their communities. So, you know, it cuts down on the carbon emissions from transporting food. So like those oranges that we like to eat, you know, like how many tons of carbon did it take for well, the, in you from know, where grown poss- to where we are? Possibly. But when you think about how you have to store food and how you have to refrigerate it and how some places produce more food than other places, Christine, I'm, you're I'm not really sure <laughs> that, that the carbon, I, I, you'd have to sit down and actually do the math. But like nobody carbon. was talking about this at the time, right? They were thinking about how great it is because you get to know your neighbors, you get to know your local farmers, you get to know your suppliers. These are all great things. Um, and they are all things that I think really are in keeping with the solar punk ethos of, you know, creating community where you are, um, which all sounds very, very positive. Yeah, but um, okay, so are people actually only wearing clothes that have been grown <laughs> with materials from a hundred mile radius? No, this is a diet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, and and fair enough. Most of you know, most of what we consume is food, probably more than anything else, right? So but still, I yeah, I always think, yeah, the principles are never universally applied. Yeah. 
I mean, I read it and these two people who wrote it, they live in British Columbia in Vancouver, which in their hundred miles, there's a whole lot of food. There's the Okanagan Valley where they have, you know, uh, fruit and stuff. And it's, it's well known as one of the places in Canada where you can grow a lot of food um, very easily because the climatic conditions are very favorable for it. And yeah, so, so this I was also... thinking to myself, 100 mile diet, eh? Well, I guess that's really nice for them, you know? Well, um, but it would destroy their local economy. <laughs> well, I I mean that the... If they can't export the stuff further than 100 miles, then goodbye local farm-based economy, right? So... It's true. You know, people people but, write books to make money and be famous, right? They don't necessarily write books that make sense, right? So people people are, they come up I with mean, an idea, they write a book. I wouldn't say all authors write books to make money and be famous. Yeah, okay. But, but you know, then you know that. Yeah, yeah no, but when you're promoting a huge big lifestyle thing like this, then... but I mean, at the time it was received super well. Um, I think having the word diet in the title was really really. It did really well among the types of people who want to have a lifestyle change, um, who want to do something good for the environment, so avoid those carbon footprint problems. But the catch to it all, when you start to think about it, really, is that you're humans in groups. So whether it is a community or a sports team or a town, they tend to be pretty competitive. So basically, we'll prioritize the in-group and denigrate the out-group. And this is sort of where that binary again comes in. And we start to hierarchicalize things. What I'm getting towards is meaning that local food and goods not only were cast in the light of being sort of healthier for you and more environmentally friendly, but morally superior to Mm -hmm. all those other foods that aren't. So, and you as a locavore take on that identity of being morally superior to the people Mm -hmm who choose to eat the morally inferior foods because they're the ones who are not thinking about how these foods destroy the environment and are bad for their communities and maybe are the result of not great trade deals. Who knows how the workers are treated on those farms? Who knows what kind of conditions this food was grown in? So your stuff is better than their stuff and you are better than them. And is that mm. us versus them? God, we're all, we're all sneeches, huh? Yes. <laughs> I I love that book. What's it called again? The the uh, the Starbelly Sneeches or something like that? No, just the Sneeches. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. You know, I, I used to work at Cambridge University uh, mm-hmm. in England, a very, very kind of stuck up place. And there's also some very smart, hardworking people there. But there was this really, really, really super famous paleo oceanographer in the department when I worked there. Um, and that was, you know, sort of more or less my field. And I forget what it was. We were gathered together for for some reason. Anyways, this guy, <laughs> Sir Nicholas Shackleton, although I don't think he was a sir yet at that point. But anyways, he was wearing a, a one of these sort of chunky knit sweaters from the Andes or whatever, and it had a very large star on it. Ah. Right on the front, right on his belly. And I said to him, ah, you're a star-bellied sneech. And he said to me, I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very academic reference (laughs) to a very 
smart sounding book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh God, oh, open mouth, insert foot. Why do I have to say these things? But I mean, like, even though that's a book for children, but it speaks to a universal truth about humanity, right? And yeah. that- we are, we like to sort yeah, ourselves. Yeah, like and I mean, I'm pretty sure that goes back to the evolutionary impulses of, you know, sorting good things into bad things. And that's how we ended up surviving. But we're kind of at the point, I think, in our species that maybe we don't need to do that so much anymore. And, but giving into those impulses to sort people, um, and especially to assign moral labels to them, becomes a tenet of that sort of fascist thought. Um, so you can see how eco-fascists would use ecological arguments to mask their fascism often when it gets pointed out and just saying, well, I'm just thinking about the earth, or I'm just thinking about the planet and its animal inhabitants. And wouldn't it just be so great if we could live more lightly on the earth, if there were less of us? And it goes down a very fraught, very slippery slope. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, no, I, but again, I think I, I, I do feel like these people are being disingenuous, but, but maybe they believe what they're saying. I don't know. I really don't know. I have not actually known any of these people, but I, we've all, okay, but we've all met people who are morally superior, but, but mm-hmm. I, you know, most morally superior aren't then, you know, going out and advocating for genocide or stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I but, think, you know, with a lot of people, I'm, I'm right now saying the quiet part out loud. I think this sort of bubbles beneath the surface of consciousness for some people who are very invested in caring for the environment, which is amazing. That's great. But the, I guess, shadow side of that is that it can very easily play into this dualistic binary that we tend to fall into as a human species. And it just takes some thought to say, wait a second. So maybe as we uh, move in here into the last segment of of this episode, we should talk about rewilding and what it means to rewild. Because this is bouncing around a lot in um, what's the word in the popular discourse. I, I the latest place I stumbled across it was actually in um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. Mm-hmm. He talks a bit about rewilding there, and so rewilding, good thing, bad thing. What is rewilding? The way that I'm generally encountering it in articles sort of and the discourse around it uh, right now is uh, removing colonial influence in North America uh, on Turtle Island. So it's not human influence, but sort of going back to the pre-colonial ways of life where humans and more than human nature sort of live together in equilibrium. So it's not separating the people and animals from each other like this sort of you it's know, that equilibrium bit. That, yeah. Sorry, I'm interrupting. That equilibrium bit sounds a little bit too idealistic for me, but yeah, well. So without putting animals and and peoples separately, so saying there's a place for humans, that's the city, and a place for more than human nature, which is the wilderness or a zoo or a wildlife preserve or a reservation or a ghetto. These words should be raising warning flags in our brains about the kind of ideologies that we use to produce them. So if we're applying that same logic to humans, how is that problematic? 
Um, I'm not saying that I have all the answers to this, but I am saying that we need to be way more careful when we want to put ideas of what makes a place quote unquote natural into action. I, I found it really interesting. This is something that I've been learning over the past couple of years is that Western science is just now realizing that vast areas of forest or land that settlers thought was unmanaged wilderness in on Turtle Island and pretty much around the world actually were they were actually food forests or managed to a degree by the indigenous folks living there. Um, but since they didn't really look like 18th century European agriculture, it wasn't really recognized as such. So it was uh, this misrecognition, which honestly is responsible for a lot of harm that's ongoing, but that's a whole other discussion. Uh, most famously, the Amazon is a managed food forest, but also the forests of the West Coast were managed. Um, and even the oak savannas of Central Turtle Island, they were curated to promote the growth of food bearing trees and plants and bushes so that humans could benefit, but it also attracted animals like deer or moose. So it provided opportunities for hunting game um, and it provided food for birds. It promoted diversity of plants and animals within the ecosystem. And I will put links in the description to the different articles that I've been reading that sort of talk about this more in terms of the specific place. So there's one article on the West Coast of Canada. There's one on uh, Morocco, I think, which is very, very interesting. Well, that's a completely different, completely, utterly different idea of rewilding than I have. My idea of rewilding is that we have an Earth who's who's <laughs> we're in the we're at the beginning of a mass extinction that we've caused by and large by our destruction of most of the wilderness of Earth, and that if we want to slow that down or prevent it from getting much, 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 much worse. And if we also want to preserve our ability to have, you know, if we want to preserve the pollinators and da 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 da, all this stuff, then you have to actually say, okay, do we actually need all this land that we're currently using for all the stuff we use it for? Or can we actually give some of it back to nature to rewild it, to allow it to become wilderness again, and to allow it to sustain huge forests or grasslands, prairies, swamps, you know, whatever, whatever is suitable for that particular, you know, what would be there if we hadn't come and taken it over, you know, in Europe is drained so where I live. It ought to be swampland here where I live. It ought to be moor and marsh and all of that. And it's drained because there's thousands of miles of drainage canals, very small ones, just little ditches or whatever, draining all of the water out of the land here so it can be used for farmland and so people can live on it. And, you know, if we if we said, OK, we don't actually, you know, Germans don't need to eat so many pigs. They don't need to drink so much milk and eat all this cheese and, and therefore raise all of these cows Last and me. pigs. And <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, <laughs> indeed. But then, you know, if you didn't have to raise all of this, all of this sweet corn, you know, the maize or whatever and wheat and stuff like and and grass to feed to these animals, then you could actually stop using this farmland, right? If people were eating more vegetables uh, and more grains, then you, you could use, you could grow the same amount of food for people, same amount of nutrition and calories on much less land area. And then you could give some of this back. You could let it become forest or swamp or whatever, moor, meadow. Right. Again. Yeah. And then it starts to 
you know, you start to grow the trees and, and as they get older, they put more and more carbon into their trunks. And the uh, as you grow back the peat bogs and you start sowing all this carbon in the peat and yeah, you get the wolves again and da, 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 you have, and it just, it, you have wilderness, it becomes sublime. Um, it <laughs> provides you all of these ecosystem services, which is a term I absolutely hate. And so that's my understanding of rewilding. When you describe that, that was butting up against my idea of wilderness as like, okay, but when we're rewilding, that means that the humans have to not go there. And it comes along with all this sort of like almost eco-fascist regulations of the way that humans are allowed to interact with land. But now I see that's not what you're thinking of at Yeah, all. not at all. I mean, so really, so when you you see this term rewilding coming up and you talk, you know, there's this big group, I can't remember what they're called, but who wants to go back to 50% of the land earth surface to be, mm -hmm. to be rewilded or to become wild again. What I was thinking of here is the half earth project, you know, and then what do you think when you, when you hear something like that with, with your definition of rewilding? I mean, you must be horrified by that. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I'm intrigued by it and I just... I mean, I would need to know more about the company. Are they, if they're rewilding, according to that definition, according to what you're thinking of, and they're not thinking of it in this idea that along with rewilding, we have to have strict regulations on who gets to go to these places and who gets to live there. As long as they're thinking critically about the ways in which that they're implementing their rewilding practices, and they're thinking in a way that is... Uh, decolonial and, you know, like that is intersectional and acknowledging of the ways that humans and the more than human environment have interacted for centuries, then I think that's fine. Um, it's just, I know that there's a really bad history of, of this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I think that we're at a point now where we realize that and moving forward are able to do better, or at least that's what I hope. Yeah, well, I think we need to start trying, right? And I think there's uh, there's some ma major, major challenges ahead of us. And you see this already with all these people trying to get into Europe and into North America because the places they live are politically unstable or they're getting to be too warm to live in and mm -hmm. crops are failing and all this stuff. And you just have these waves and waves of people trying to, yeah, they always say immigrate, but the truth is these, are, these people are refugees and they're, they're not really... A lot of they them. are already not getting a warm reception, right? Yeah. And and so this is really a serious topic that needs to be tackled because it's only going to get worse. And yeah. if it's already at a crisis point and there need to be solutions that are good for as many people as, as humanly possible. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and, and what does that look like, right? What does that look like? Exactly. Yeah. That's a big thing that we all ought to be working on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a whole, that's a whole other topic. Yes. So, okay. So maybe we should just leave that here and say, hurrah, we made it to the end of season two. Mm, yay. Um, yeah. And we've both really enjoyed speaking to our guests this season. Speaking for myself, at least I've been learning a lot. I oh, me too. Learning. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, both of us, we hope our listeners have found the episodes as entertaining and full of food for thought as we have. Mm -hmm. It's been fun. I'm looking forward to the next season of Solar yeah. Punk Presence. Um, speaking of which, the first episode of season three will be coming to patrons, to our patrons and Patreon. 
um, <laughs> in the last week of June and to all of our listeners in the first week of July this year. So just in time for your summer vacation, if you need to, yeah, I don't know, lie on the beach and listen to a podcast or whatever. If you miss us in the meantime, be sure to check out all of our, our back episodes on our website. Yeah, we're really looking forward to uh, season three. It's going to be super exciting. Yeah, until then, uh, stay solar punk, everybody. And don't forget that we need your support. So recommend us to a friend, review our podcast, and join our Patreon and check for the link in the show's description. Okay, see you next season. Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presents, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and in Germany. The opening and closing music of this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.